I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Just as you're turning there, John Bunyan wrote a book that probably most of you have read called The Pilgrim's Progress. And the book tells a story of a man named Christian who makes his way towards this celestial city. It is an allegory of the Christian life written uh, more than 300 years ago by this man, John Bunyan. And it is, my understanding, it is the most uh, sold book in the English-speaking language besides the Bible. Uh, It has never been out of print since it was written, so well over 300 years ago in the 1600s. Of course, Bunyan was a Baptist preacher and pastor, and he was uh, convinced of uh, his need to preach the gospel and to gather churches as Baptists did. And this was illegal, made illegal in England, and he suffered for it. Uh, He spent 12 years in prison in one stint because he simply would not not preach Christ and and gather his people. And then he spent another term in prison as well, a shorter term as well. But it was in prison that he wrote this book. And it's a great work for many reasons. It captures so much of the Christian life especially this whole idea of belonging to another kingdom and living in this world and this life now as strangers and aliens. That's the whole idea of going on a pilgrimage to a better city, this celestial city, as he calls it. And the many joys and trials of the Christian life are portrayed very vividly in this book and very helpfully. One type of difficulty that comes up routinely in the Pilgrim's Progress is that many times Christian and his companions with him that are going on this journey together, uh, they run across other people who appear at first to be like-minded. They appear to be fellow pilgrims headed to the same place of like mind, but who are in fact, as it turns out, False brothers. They are men who would lead these pilgrims astray. And sometimes they really do lead Christian and his friends into temporary error and heartache and pain. Uh, if you're familiar with the book, you remember Mr. Worldly Wise Man during the uh, or early in the book, that is, who, who is trying to lead Christian to another way to get this burden removed from his back away from the cross. The cross is a very difficult way. Uh, There's other ways to do this, and Christian finds himself in trouble before he's rebuked and and finds himself back on the path. At other times, though, Christian and his friends are discerning enough to spot the errors and even to refute them. Remember later on, there's a character named By Ends, and there's others that join with him, uh, Mr. Money Love, and so on. And they're able to see through what these men are, 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 are saying, their errors, and continue on the path. The beauty of this book, the beauty of the allegory, is that it captures so much of the scriptures within it. I think it was Spurgeon's remark was that Bunyan would bleed Bible if you pricked him, if he bled. He would bleed Bible. He had the Bible known. It was in in him. And as he wrote this allegory, it's, it's apparent and clear. And as we come to the end of chapter three of the book of Philippians, This is one of the obvious places where we explicitly find the idea of 
the Christian life as a pilgrimage, and also the importance of our paying careful attention to those we look up to, to those we follow after and associate with. And I can hardly think of a more timely reminder in our own day than what we have here in this text. So let's read this together and then we will work through it. We'll read beginning in verse 17. We'll read through to chapter 4, verse 1. Brothers, join in imitating and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In our passage before us, Paul continues to admonish us toward godly living in the present as we anticipate and look toward the end. And specifically, he calls us here, Paul does, to imitate him and those who are striving to live as Paul lives. So as we work through this, we're going to have four points to the sermon outline. Very simple. First, the command. We're going to look at the command. That's in verse 17. Second, we'll see the first reason for the command in verses 18 and 19. Thirdly, the second reason for the command in verses 20 and 21. And then we will look at the conclusion, Paul's conclusion in verse one of chapter four. So first, the command, the command. In verse 17, there's actually technically two commands given here, but they're really getting at the same thing. So here's what Paul says. He says, brothers, join in imitating me or become fellow imitators of me, along with the other believers that he has led and, and, and has called to the same task. Uh, join them in imitating me. That's the first command. And keep your eyes. There's the second And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So the exhortation, the command here is to mimic Paul's life and those who are likewise seeking to live according to Paul's instruction and according to his example. Now what Paul specifically has in mind as the pattern to be followed is what he has been laying out for us throughout this chapter. Uh, Specifically going back and say for sure, back to verse 4. So if we consider what we've discussed over the last several Sundays in those verses, Paul is putting no confidence in his flesh. You recall his hope of justification, the grounds of his salvation, his boast is in Christ alone, purely in what the Lord Jesus Christ has has done. To pay for his sins and to secure a righteousness that is Paul's as a gift of God's grace by faith, by believing in Jesus. He's not seeking to establish his salvation and justification by works of the law, but he's resting in and trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as one whose trust is in Christ alone for this, 
He also, as we have seen, now sets his mind on knowing Christ further, knowing the power of his resurrection, as he says, by which Paul grows in his Christ-likeness and knowledge of Christ, sharing in the sufferings of Christ, becoming like him in his death, while all the while looking to the final resurrection from the dead, toward the day when when the, the Lord Jesus will return and Paul will indeed be made perfect, finally and forever. Paul has been purchased by Christ. He belongs to Christ. And so, out of gratitude for this and because he belongs to the Lord Jesus, Paul seeks to pursue the very thing for which Christ has purchased him. Perfection, holiness, righteousness, the resurrection from the dead. And again, he's not doing that in order to justify himself, but because he is justified. And so, as he said, he forgets what lies behind. And like a a runner in a race, he is sprinting forward towards the prize. He's looking ahead to what is coming. And this is, Paul told us, how mature believers are to think And to live. And it is to such people that he says, now we are to keep our eyes on so as to imitate. And when Paul calls us here to follow him in this, to mimic him, he is not being arrogant in this matter by look at me and and follow me. I'm so great. Paul has, in fact, spoken very humbly of his own pursuit of the Lord. He has acknowledged he has not arrived. He has not reached and attained perfection yet. This is in contrast, as we saw last week, to others who in all likelihood were claiming some sort of of perfection, maybe a spiritual perfection that they've already attained. It is not those who are already perfect that we are to find and then try to be like and imitate. Rather, it is those fighting the good fight and straining toward perfection while resting in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done. And this is what Paul himself was doing. Elsewhere, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, Paul says, There be imitators of me as I am of Christ. The ultimate example for us is clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul has already made that clear. If you think back to chapter 2, Christ is this example of humility that we are to seek to follow after, to be like. But we must remember, of course, unlike the Lord Jesus Christ, the rest of us are sinners. So what does it look like for redeemed sinners to pursue Christ's likeness? Jesus, we look at his life, he never sinned himself. He didn't have to deal with his own sins. So what what is it like for you and for me who are not perfect? Well, we look to Paul and the apostles who demonstrate for us what it means to live this life who've explained to us and taught us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, left for us in God's word, what this life looks like. So ultimately, yes, we, Christ is our ultimate goal to be Christ-like. But as we seek to get there, what does this look like? We, we follow after Paul's example. We keep an eye on those seeking to live in the way prescribed here. We needn't find perfect men and women to imitate, we'll either never find them or we're going to delude ourselves into some sort of hero worship or idolatrous practice like that. There are no perfect Christians. Paul is not perfect. 
The other people he says to, to keep your eye on, they were not perfect either, but they were seeking to live this life that Paul is describing here. This is one place where Christian biographies can be very helpful to us as we consider keeping an eye on those who have uh, lived their lives in obedience to this. Not perfect by any stretch, but there are saints who've come and gone, though imperfect, nevertheless, they sought to live the life that Paul is describing here. And such people are worthy of honor. They're worthy of considering their lives and the outcome of their, their ways. Whether they're from previous generations In some ways, that's easier because the the totality of their lives have come and gone. Uh, They didn't, you know, we we know how they finished. There are many people today who started out well, and and we've seen this happen. They completely come unglued and fall off the rails and end up in all manner of error. This is one aspect of, or one one place where reading these biographies of, of Christian people can be helpful. To imitate them as they seek to imitate Paul and Christ himself. With regard to Paul and his example, we have not only his narrative of his life. We see, for example, in the book of Acts, we see not everything about Paul's life, but a lot of what he did as he went on his various missionary journeys and he endured the things he endured. And, and we can see within the book of Acts some of what it was that was driving Paul. But we also find even more about that in places like what we're reading now in Philippians chapter 3, where he's explaining to us his mindset. You read Acts and you think, the, the, the man seemed to be a machine. And what was he thinking? What was going on as he just got up from getting stoned and, and, and obviously took some time to heal a bit? And, and then just carried on going through those same places to encourage the Lord's people. What was happening in his mind. Well, he's telling us here what he was thinking. He's telling us how he sought to live his life. And the command here in God's word is for you and I to imitate him in these things. Imitate him by taking this mindset. So that's the command. And then we have the first reason for the command. So there's really two reasons given for, for, for this command that's issued in verse 17. The first one comes in the statement in verses 18 and 19. It says in verse 18, for, so keep, keep your eye on me and on people who are seeking to live in this way, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. So one of the reasons Paul says to mimic me, mimic Paul, is because for there are many enemies out there. And the implication here is that they will lead you astray in these matters if you're not careful. If you're not careful about who it is you're following and mimicking, there are many who are enemies who will lead you off the path. If you're not discerning on who you imitate, You could wind up being sucked in by some enemy of the cross and you'll fall prey. You'll be misled. At the very least, you'll be hindered in your walk. Paul says here that he has told them this often and he is doing it yet again here. 
warnings about this, about those who would move you away from a focused Christian life, these warnings are continuous. They were regular for Paul. He's told this, this, this one church many times and continues to tell them to be careful in this regard, to be warned of enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, before we look more at who those enemies are, notice that Paul says he warns even with tears or with weeping. He weeps as he considers this matter. Now, if we think about warning people about godless people, there is, in one sense, that, that's not a very hard thing to do. Um, you, you don't necessarily need to be filled with the love of Christ in order to speak judgment upon people and to condemn other people. Some of us, if we just wake up and do nothing, we will be very critical of people who deserve it. But to weep for such people is a very different spirit. That is the compassion of a soul that is sensitive to the reality of what is at stake here. Paul is not timid, we know that. Paul is not mushy. He's not sensitive in some weird way. Paul knew how to be bold. He was courageous. But he also knew tears of grief over lost and ruined souls. Over lost souls dragging other lost souls down. Over lost souls causing harm to God's people. Thieves who would seek to destroy the flock. Paul did not just know how to condemn such, how to warn about such. But he also wept over this, wept over the whole situation. This is instructive for us. Let's keep these words, even with tears, in mind. Let's be people who seek such a heart. You remember, of course, the disciples, the sons of thunder, when Christ was rejected in Samaria, and they said, shall we call down fire from heaven? Of course, what happened there in Samaria was a great evil, right? The, the eternal Son of God in human form was there, and these people rejected him. They wanted him gone, right? Would you not feel a sense of rage well up? How dare they do this? And we, we, we might flippantly dismiss what those disciples do. Oh, there they go again. But you might also know something of that feeling. The enemies of God deserve this. And of course, we know they do. But Paul understands that reality and yet also weeps over it. Let us be reminded of the, the place for compassion for the lost. Even, yes, even the enemies of Christ. Now, who were these enemies of the cross? Well, specifically, who they were is difficult to say for certain. Some would say that Paul is still talking about the Judaizers, those he began addressing back in, in verse 2, the dogs, the mutilators of the flesh. 
Others would argue that he's addressing here a different group, maybe the libertines, those who are promoting a licentiousness, those who would maybe say, you know, spiritually we've arrived, what we do with our bodies doesn't really matter, you can kind of engage in whatever physically, it's no big deal. Uh, Whoever exactly he has in mind here, most agree that Paul does have in mind those who claim to be Christians, but whose behavior, whose walk, contradicts the profession that they've made. Their deeds actually expose them as being frauds. Now, the phrase enemies of the cross of Christ, just by itself, could refer to theological opponents, those whose gospel is wrong. Certainly, Paul has addressed that. Uh, The Judaizers did have a gospel that was theologically wrong in addition to their wrong practice. Clearly, the group Paul's talking about here, he's going to say their end is destruction. They clearly don't believe the gospel in a saving way. But Paul's main focus here is on the false practice of these enemies. These, are, these enemies of the cross of Christ, they refuse the way of the cross, the life that is lived under the shadow of the cross, the life of self-denial and even of suffering, the sharing in Christ's suffering that Paul has mentioned. They are enemies of this. In his commentary, Dennis Johnson writes this. He says, on balance, it seems that at the po- this point in the letter, Paul has in view people who are identified with the Christian community at large, but whose pattern of behavior, whose walk contradicts their confession of Christ and his cross in practical ways. So the, the alarm here is less doctrine, though obviously they have doctrinal problems, but it's their living that he's drawing attention to. They're living that you might be tempted to mimic. Johnson continues in his commentary, although the group in question might have been traveling under a passport that claimed citizenship in Christ's kingdom, their conduct fit more naturally into a city that was anything but celestial. Rather than the godly pursuit of sanctification, verse 19 says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly, and their glory, they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. These, these folks are headed not for glory that Paul has already described, that he and believers are headed toward. Rather, their end is destruction. They are headed for judgment. And as they head there, as they live this life, he says, their God is their belly. A reference to their own lustful appetites, being their guide. If we take that very literally, their God is their belly, it would probably be a reference to gluttony. But it is probably meant here by Paul a little more broadly than that. These are people who follow after their own cravings, their own desires, whatever specifically that might lead them to. Paul uses this uh, similar language elsewhere in Romans 16. He talks about those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. He says, avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. So in the same kind of context of warning those we would associate with as brothers and look up to and follow after is the same idea of following their own appetites. Whatever their profession, the reality is they follow after their own impulses, their own appetites. 
desires. He says, and they glory in their shame. They glory in their shame. Again, whatever specifically these people were boasting in, it is actually their shame. If this is the Judaizers he has in mind, it's easy to see that their boast of circumcision was actually just mutilation, which he has already said. And so it's easy to see how that would be shameful for them. Their boast is completely off and is shameful. If it's the Libertines, their boast of freedom to just engage in various lusts of the flesh, that's their glory. We, we can do this. It's fine. Well, it's actually in Paul's understanding and in truth, it is their shame. And so to sum it up, Paul says their minds are set on earthly things. Now, this doesn't mean that all concern about earthly life is bad. The reality is we live the Christian life now on this earth. And there are things that are concerning to us on this earth. We live out. We're here now on this earth, gathering as the church here now. We work in this world. We, if we have families, we raise families in this world here and now. And there are some who have, I think, gone over to an extreme where we just simply think about heavenly things. We, this sort of earth, bad, heavenly things, good. And, and, and so we, we can get away from even understanding that we live our Christian life to the Lord here on this earth now. What this is addressing here when he talks about their minds are set on earthly things is what we might call worldliness. Such people that Paul is addressing are ultimately consumed with this world and worldly principles, worldly ways of thinking, worldly religion, a worldly approach to life on this planet, consumed with the here and now. The things we can see, what is right around us, not thinking not, not viewing all of this through a heavenly mindset and lens, but just being consumed with what we can see and touch and right in front of us. It is the opposite of being concerned with that which is fitting with the heavenly kingdom of which believers are presently citizens. It is the opposite of striving toward that last day. Paul uses this kind of language elsewhere. We saw this when we were in the book of Colossians, chapter 3, verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And then again in Romans chapter 8, verse 5, Paul says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. The people Paul is warning about are so consumed about earthly life. This is what they dwell upon. This is what they meditate upon. This is their great concern here and now. So the first reason given for being careful who you imitate is that there are many who might talk a good game, but are nevertheless enemies of Christ and his cross, enemies of the gospel and the life that is consistent 
with that gospel. They have a different ethic and they have a very different end, as he says here. And so this requires of us and commends to us discernment, to be discerning with whom you imitate. Because there are false professors whose end is destruction, who walk not according to Christ, who live not in accordance with the gospel. So that's the first reason. And the second reason for the command we find in verses 20 and 21. Now in the Greek text, verse 20 begins with the word for. So we saw that in verse 18 with the first reason that is given. Verse 18, he says, For many of whom I have told you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross. Verse 20 uses the same word. For our citizenship is in heaven. The ESV translates it with but. Uh, They're trying to bring out the contrast between verses 18 and 19 and verses 20 and 21. The way of Christ's enemies, we've just seen in 18 and 19, versus the way of the Christians in verses 20 and 21. The word for more clearly signals to us that this is a second reason to mimic Paul and those like him. He says, for, or but, our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. The enemies of Christ are earthly-minded, and their end is destruction. We do not follow such men, but men like Paul, because our citizenship is in heaven, and our end is glory. A completely different life and a completely different end. The second reason to follow those like Paul is found in our citizenship in the heavenly city, and sure eschatological hope, end times hope, that results from that citizenship. This is not the first place in the letter that Paul has raised this concept of citizenship. If you remember back in chapter 1, verse 27, Paul says there, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And I said back then that that command, let your manner of life, is a translation of a single Greek word, which, as Spurgeon explains, signifies the actions and the privileges of citizenship. It is saying, behave as citizens worthy, suitable to your citizenship. And here in verse 20, we have another word with the same root. And it speaks here of our state or a commonwealth. Our commonwealth, the place to which we truly and ultimately belong, our country, is in heaven. I've said this before, but the Philippians, they were very proud Roman citizens. As one commentator says, Philippi was a miniature Rome with an administration that reflected that of the mother city in almost every way. So Philippi was founded as a colony of Rome, a little different than than a lot of the other territories that had been conquered by Rome. Philippi was founded as 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 a colony of Rome and had a very special status as such. And there's inscriptions and evidence that, that they, they were very proud of this in, in Philippi. So Paul reminds the church here that their ultimate city is the heavenly one. And their lives now in the present are to reflect that citizenship properly. So that as these once 
proud Roman citizens turned to the Lord Jesus Christ in repentance and faith now suddenly start to suffer the wrath of their fellow citizens of whom they once were happily and proudly shoulder to shoulder with in Rome in, in Philippi. As they now suffer this, he's reminding them, your ultimate citizenship is not here. It is not in Philippi. It is not the Roman Empire. It is not Rome itself. It is in heaven. It is the heavenly city. I can hardly think of a better thing to remind ourselves of today. We see in Paul here this now and not yet in his eschatology, in his understanding of the end times and the future. We are citizens. If you are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are citizens of God's kingdom now, but we have not yet taken full possession of our inheritance. And so we live in light of that citizenship that you presently have now with an eye toward, headed toward that final day. When we will receive the full inheritance for which Christ has died and purchased you. That is coming upon the return of Christ. Paul says at that time, the Lord Jesus will transform our lowly, humble body to be like his glorious body. Again, we saw this last week in verses 10 through 16. Paul's forward look to his life, looking toward the final resurrection. Seeking to to remain focused upon that. That's the finish line that he's chasing after. That is the time when the dead in Christ will be raised with imperishable bodies. Glorified bodies. After the likeness of Christ's own resurrected bodies. We, We read about this in 1 Corinthians 15. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet... For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will and we shall be changed for this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality when the perishable body puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? For the believer in Christ Jesus, this is our eschatological hope, our end times hope. We belong to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And our Savior will come back one day for his bride, for his people. The dead in Christ will rise and all of Christ's redeemed who are alive will likewise, as he said here, be changed. Glorified in an instant, the twinkling of an eye. Holiness will be brought to completion in God's people. And Christ will usher in the new heavens and new earth. This is our hope, and it is a certain hope. Your glorification will be accomplished, or God is a liar. Paul says this will be accomplished by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. In the end, all things will be made subject to Christ. All of his enemies will be made a footstool for his feet. Judgment will come and peace and righteousness will be established forever. 
And the same power that will make all of that so will be at work in you if you are trusting in Christ for your glorification. We wonder how these things can be, but we're talking about the God who has created everything, who is ultimately beyond our understanding, who is infinite. If we understand and believe that God through the Lord Jesus Christ, will one day make all things new and will make all of this right and bring about judgment. The same Lord is going to use that same power to glorify you, to bring holiness to perfection in you. This is part of what is promised in the new covenant. And so we are called to Imitate those now who live this life now in light of that reality. Your heavenly citizenship is truly yours now. And and, and nobody and nothing can take that away. We await the consummation of Christ's kingdom, the full reception of that inheritance. But it says, sure, as anything else that God has promised. There's so much in this teaching, in this understanding, to nourish the soul. First of all, if you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, hear again here, in this text, what the end result of that is. If you stand before God in your sin, having marshaled your best efforts to overcome it, having tried to do enough good to offset your sins, the end is destruction. The end is judgment. But there is a righteousness for all who repent of their sin and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A righteousness of God received by faith, by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has died on the cross, taking and bearing the sins of all who trust in him, satisfying God's wrath for those sins, judgment for those sins, fell upon the eternal Son of God who came in the flesh. And he rose again from the dead in victory, securing the justification of all in him. Securing eternal life, eternal redemption, that inheritance that awaits all who trust in Christ. And for those trusting in Christ, we need to remember this. We need to hold fast to this. This doesn't mean we cannot and should not engage in the issues of our day in the world around us. We should. But we do that as those who understand our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. And you and I are not going to usher in the new heavens and new earth. Nor is anyone else. And so we proclaim Christ. And we hope in Christ. And we speak of what is Righteous and what is evil to the world. We proclaim God's law 
that man might know what is right and wrong. But we also preach that every man and woman has fallen short of the glory of God, fallen short of God's standards, and therefore needs the good news of the gospel. Jesus Christ has died. He has risen again from the dead. He has purchased salvation. And there is righteousness to be received by faith. Grasping this will free you to serve God, will free you from fear and from vexation. It will combat the fear and anxiety you feel. It does not mean, of course, that all suffering suddenly becomes wonderful and easy for us. It's still pain is still pain. But it means that we have a great eternal hope that cannot be taken. So briefly, let's look at Paul's conclusion in, in verse 1 of chapter 4. This first verse of chapter 4 really finishes off this section we're looking at. Paul says, therefore, so in light of what he has said, in light of what he has just said, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul's concern and his love for the church overflows in this verse. Whom I love, long for, my joy and my crown. Stand firm, my beloved. He just keeps pouring these phrases out. His concern and love for them overflows in this verse, even as he gives them this exhortation again to stand firm thus. Or to stand firm in this way. That is in the way that he has just been describing. By resting your hope. Your hope of glory in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then straining on toward that final day. Following the example of Paul and those like him. Living as citizens of heaven. Now as we are on our way to that celestial city. Again, as much as ever, we need this mindset. This hope will not fail, even if everything else crumbles around us. We have this hope to carry us through whatever difficulty comes our way. Despair is not the end. There is joy to be had here as we set our eyes on the heavenly kingdom from which our Savior will return to transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Stand firm here. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we deserve your judgment for our sins. And we give you praise and thanksgiving for the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is righteousness that can be ours by, by faith. Father, that though we could not do anything to deal with our sins and to obtain righteousness, you've done it all for us in and through Christ, who died for our sins to satisfy your wrath and has lived perfectly obedient life and secured righteousness for all in him. Father, we look forward to the day that Christ returns. Father, forgive us where we have been overly focused on earthly things and fretting and vexing about it all. 
And yet, Father, we do pour out our lament for so much evil and wickedness and suffering that's all around us. And we feel helpless. We don't always know what to do. But I pray that you would help us to rise above our fret and anxiety to find joy in the truths that we are looking at today, that your word proclaims to us, that we would then also find it the strength to, to open up our mouths and tell others about this good news. Father, we pray that in mercy you would spare our world from great suffering right now. Father, we, we, we bring all of our prayers to you in the name of Jesus. We have no other hope. Father, we recognize and acknowledge you are sovereign over all things. And if difficulty is what you desire, increase difficulty even for our world, for this portion of your created world. Father, help us to set our eyes on things above and to, to respond in wisdom to whatever situation we find ourselves in. Father, there are various cares and concerns that we have heavy upon us, and they are real issues and real weights and real difficulties. But I pray that you would help us, that you would do good work in our spirits, that we might yet rejoice in our eternal hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray all these things together in the name of Jesus. Amen.